Hello, TalkHouse listeners. This week, we're resurfacing a talk featuring a frequent TalkHouse contributor who seems to be having yet another career moment, Michelle Zahner, a.k.a. Japanese Breakfast. You may have caught Zahner and her band on the season finale of SNL in an amazing performance, or playing your local theater, or on every playlist worth a damn. This talk, which originally ran about a year ago, around the time the latest Japanese Breakfast album, Jubilee, came out, features Zahner in conversation with Rostam, the musician and producer best known as part of Vampire Weekend, but also a prolific solo artist of his own. If you like what you hear, definitely visit TalkHouse.com, where you'll find two more Japanese Breakfast podcasts, one with Alex Cameron and another with Rachel Goswell of Slow Dive. Enjoy. Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Today's conversation started with a little bit of serendipity in the form of album release dates. Both of our guests, Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast and producer, musician, former Vampire Weekend guy, Rostam, have excellent records coming out on June 4th. They're also fans of each other's work, so we figured it made plenty of sense to put them together. Zahner's album, her third under the Japanese Breakfast name, is called Jubilee. And as you'll hear in this conversation, it took a deliberate turn towards slightly happier themes than her first two. It comes hot on the heels of Zahner's first book, a heartbreaking memoir called Crying in H Mart that deals with her mother's death, also a theme in her early music, and food, lots of food. It's a really touching read and an ideal companion to her musical catalog, which grew in really compelling ways with Jubilee. Here's a little bit of a song they talk about in the conversation, Be Sweet. Rostam is best known as a founding member of Vampire Weekend, and even though he officially left the band a few years ago, he still contributes some songwriting and production work. He's kept plenty busy otherwise, producing records and writing songs with an incredible array of other artists, from Hamilton Lighthouser to Haim to Clyro. His first proper solo album is the gentle, string-filled, fantastic Half-Light, which came out in 2017, and now he's releasing Change Phobia, which, as you'll hear, ditches the string section and brings in a saxophone, among other things. Check out a little bit of From the Back of a Cab. You and me could be mistaken and feeling that though Never tried so hard not to spend the night so You say you think we better stay up late as we can Don't know where but you're sleeping next to me then And in the jump right into a conversation that flits around from silly to deep. On one hand, they talk about childhood loves of chess and fencing and the importance of song five on an album. On the other, Zahner gets rightfully annoyed at interview questions she gets that other people don't, and Rostam talks about being Persian in a band that was sometimes pegged as particularly white. It's a funny, smart chat. Enjoy. Let's start by talking about what unites us. We have the same release date, I just yes. discovered, yeah. We're release date twins. You know, I think a lot of artists think of their albums as like their children. And as I've gotten older and started to have more children, I, I like think about their birthdays and like what season they've come to represent to me. Is that something that you think about at all? Does this feel like a June Gemini <laughs> record? Yes, I think <laughs> I look at it a different way. Like I like the certain numbers, the way they look together is pleasing to me. That's like very cultural. Like, for example, I know the number four is not liked in China. In Korea, a lot of hospitals don't have the floor 
for because it's bad luck because it looks like the Chinese character for death. That's so fascinating because one of the reasons I liked 6-4-2021 was because I liked the way those numbers look together. Whoa. Did you choose the date? There was a few floating around, and I think that was actually like the latest date that I could have picked, but I like the idea of putting out a record kind of at the beginning of summer, which I've never done. I love that idea of having music that people would associate with that moment. But it's funny, as I say that, I'm reminded, I didn't really like summer for the first like 29 years of my life. Growing up in D.C., if you've ever spent a summer in D.C., it's just insanely humid. Mm. And it feels like you're putting on like a soaking wet, warm sweater as soon as you walk outside sometimes. One of the reasons I like summer now is I started going to this town in Massachusetts called Provincetown. It made me happy in a way that I didn't expect anything that I discovered so late in life to make me happy. And and now I've been going there for the last seven years. Every, for the summer? Not the whole summer, just a few weeks is enough. Is it on the water or? If you know what Cape Cod looks like, Cape Cod is this huge kind of peninsula that juts out. It's the very tip of the Cape. There's some cool history to it. It's where the pilgrims landed, but decided that they couldn't live because there's no potable water. Mm. They settled there and then they were like, no, this doesn't work. And then they kind of got back on the boat and came inland. And it had this history like in the 60s and 70s, it became this hippie commune. And then it became the first gay beach town in America. Whoa. And it's been that way. And it's like one of the only places that you can like feel like the saturation point is so much more extreme in terms of gay people versus straight people or queer people versus straight people that like once you're there, you're kind of like, oh, this is what is what life could be like. Yeah, (laughs) it's like a feeling of safety. Yeah, safety and also just like openness and, and pretty much everyone there wants to be there because it's hard to get to. It's like a two hour drive from Boston. And once you get to the end of the Cape, there's nothing after it. That sounds lovely. Do you just chill there or do you ever work there? I've tried bringing stuff and I just don't do anything. You spend most of your day on a bicycle so you can bike to the beach. That sounds so lovely right now. (laughs) Do you think that you'll be able to go and and celebrate your album release there? (laughs) I'll meet you there. We'll celebrate together. (laughs) I told my team, I was like, after this album comes out, I got a month and then I'm out. Don't make me do anything. (laughs) I'll spend a month like doing more promotion, but then I don't want to do anything. When did you write this record? (sighs) Starting in fall of 2017. And then I probably finished the last song a little less than a year ago. When did Half-Light come out? September 2017. Are we in sync? We're really in sync because my record was supposed to come out last year, like this, like June of last year. And then right before we were about to shoot our first music video in March, New York went into lockdown. And I remember my producer was about to fly out from L.A. and she was like, do you think that this is going to affect us at all? And I was like, I don't see why. Like, why would it? It doesn't have anything to do with us. It's so petty to look back on now. But the thing I was like really bothered by was this four year gap in my discography. Do you think about that at all? Is this number two or three? This is my second album as an artist and a producer, and it's my ninth album as a producer. So yes, I I definitely think about when albums come out. And this album, I started making it in November 2017. And then along the way, I also made an album with Claro and an album with Haim. Which I love, both of those records. Oh, thank you so much. And your record, yeah. (laughs) And then this album coincided with entering the lockdown. So it was my goal all along to finish the album after I had finished working on Haim. I feel your pain in terms of wanting the album to come out. And it's funny that I say that because that's a little bit what my album title is about, is just like dealing with change. And if you envision something a certain way and then life shows you that it can be different or maybe that it should be different. Are you someone who is good with change or do you have a fear of change? (laughs) I think that all of us do. That was kind of my big realization with this album that I think we all are afraid of change to a degree. And yes, I'm certainly guilty. And that's what made me 
want to title the album Change Phobia. That was what I was interested in reminding myself of and being like, you got to overcome this. Wait, let's talk about your album title for a second. Give me an answer to the question. The same question. My, my record is called Jubilee. And I wrote the last two records largely about grief. And particularly the last record I made, Soft Sounds from Another Planet, was a record about dissociating from feeling uh, as a way to preserve your mental health. They were written in the wake of the loss of my mother. And then I wrote like a 250 page book about losing my mother. And that kind of paved the way to make me feel like I was ready to like take on a new topic. And I wanted to fling myself to this sort of total opposite end of the spectrum and read an album about joy. And I knew from pretty early on that I wanted the album to be called Jubilee. I don't know why that word like really struck me early on, but it just felt like it encompassed the feelings that I was rushing for. Since my last record was so much about avoiding feeling things that were painful, I feel very like ready to embrace feeling with this album. And not all of the songs are like ecstatically happy and about joy per se. There's songs about like different ways that we interact with joy to fight for joy or to like sustain joy or to protect it from people who take away joy or a reminder to interact with joy. <laughs> like the first song on the record is the song called Paprika. I was just listening to that one again this morning. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel like both of our records also like have a lot of horns. <laughs> <laughs> Was that something that you knew you wanted to do? I think we should get to that. But I, I actually have more questions for you before we okay. get there. Okay. I want to talk about when in the album writing process did the title appear? Did you write more songs after the title came? I'm very interested in that chronology because I've been like thinking more and more about what it means to make an album and like the larger picture. In a perfect world, you would set out on a theme and then write 10 songs that are all about that. But oh, I think really? that's very rare. I, I don't think that's a perfect world. That's like an unrealistic world. But I, in terms of a marketing narrative, like all of these songs are exactly about this like theme mm. and this is like what all binds them together in some way. But the truth of it is that some of them are borrowed from different times in my life. In 2017, I wrote In Hell, and it was like a bonus track on Soft Sounds that like was one of those songs that's like too good to just be a bonus song. And so I, mm -hmm. I kept it stored away. And then like in 2018, in February after a tour, I was like in LA for 10 days. And I had one of those like publishing dates where like your label is like, Jack Tatum from Wild Nothing really needs help writing his record and he wants you to help him. And then to mm -hmm. Jack, they were like, Michelle's Honor of Japanese Breakfast really wants help writing her new album and thought of you. And then we both got there and we we're like, so you want help writing your new record? And we we're both like, no, I'm not working on a new record. So it was like one of those weird blind dates where like you're publishing lies to you about what's going on to like try to like match you with someone and, and make something great together. I think it's just a very LA thing. It's like an L.A. and Nashville thing that happens. I somehow have so far not gotten to that point in my life. Well, that's good. Avoid it. It's happened like a couple days, like randomly, that those kinds of things have happened. But it's been because I've wanted to do it or I was a fan of a song that a writer wrote or a fan of the artist. And that's most, that's really like 99% of what I did. But I'm very, very curious about your experience with it. I had a terrible experience with it, except for working with Jack. Usually they feel like they pair like a kind of indie artist with someone a little, who has like more mainstream sensibilities. So I was like, I can write like an earworm or two. And like, when I got in there, I was like, this is just awful. I just hate this. But I did have a really great experience with Jack. It's weird that they put us together. So we were like, let's just write for someone else. Like we didn't have anyone in mind, but we wrote Be Sweet together, which is like the first time that I've co-written with someone. And I just really loved it and had it in my back pocket as a single for a really long time. And, and then I wrote this song called Posing in Bondage that like was a demo version. And then those three songs and this sort of like real desire to write about a new topic that wasn't like so heavy and dark, I think made me think of this sort of umbrella of like Jubilee. And then after that, like the next seven songs I wrote was like having that loosely in mind of what the theme would be. What about you? I had three album titles that oh, wow. were floating around in my mind. What were they? I can't say. <laughs> you must say. I can't say. You can't let go of one? 
<laughs> are they bad? Are they really bad? No, they're not really bad. No, Why are you hiding it? I'm hiding it because, I don't know. It's like a relationship I want to protect. That's fair. With that Sorry outlet. to bully you. <laughs> <laughs> but the first title that came to me was more about gender. And that was something that was in the back of my mind with this record. And then the second title was more about nationality. Wow. And then I was having a drink with a friend and I was throwing out the three titles and I was like, what do you like the most? And he was like, he's like, well, Change Phobia kind of sounds like a Prince album. <laughs> and I, the more I thought about that, I was like, I like that. <laughs> I like that someone could pick it up and be like, is this some kind of Prince tribute album? <laughs> That's amazing. Did you have like a major influence for this record? Was he one of them or beyond the title? A major influence. Wow. That's a good question. I don't think I could make music being influenced by just one person, but I'm certainly Mm -hmm. thinking about specific influences and let me think about it more. But yes, it's so hard not to be influenced by Prince, but it wasn't like in the front of my mind if I think about it, it was probably Mm -hmm. in the back of my mind. I would love to hear that from you. Very like in your face, (laughs) like seductive music. (laughs) Maybe LP3. Yeah, so you're in your LP3 era. I'm in my LP3 era, which was like a weirdly, really important thing for me. I get really obsessive about certain artists and where they're at their career, at what number of record. I like live on the Wikipedia discography section of artists. And I do this really sick thing where I'll subtract the year an album came out with their birthday. So I know how old they were when they came out with a certain record and if I'm on track to be successful. (laughs) But for me, the third album was really important because I had been trying to be a musician for many years. And I feel like I was a little bit of a late bloomer in our industry. I felt like with my first album, I had just like finally won this lottery. I had been like really trying to make it as a musician for 10 years before like anyone started paying any kind of like attention or I got any kind of press or anything. And so then when I did my sophomore album, I was so terrified of the sophomore sophomore slump. slump. Yeah. Did you have that feeling with this record? No, I I don't. I didn't. Because you've made so many records that it's almost like it's not really your second in a way. I was too concerned with like wanting the record to be somewhat of a break from my almost my entire discography. I was like, I don't even want it to be comparable. I'm, I'm not saying I, I got there, but yeah. I love the idea of doing something that felt like a new chapter musically. Mm-hmm. How did you try to make that happen? So there was one thing that I told myself that I was not allowed to use, and that was strings. Oh, wow. So there's pretty much no strings on the whole album. You went with horns. Okay, so here's one one thing I'll say. When you say horns, to me, it connotes like a brass section mm-hmm. with a trumpet, a trombone. Right. So it's mostly sax on the record. Yes, it's all sax. Okay, okay, okay. I think saxophone is technically a woodwind instrument. Mm-mm-mm. But you, I think you would call it horns. I have a sax player that I met at the outset of making this, like at the very beginning of 2018. And he started playing on songs that were not finished. I just started making the music and sometimes I had things written out for him, like sheet music. Other times I would just sing a melody. Like there's one melody on the record Mm. that I sang to him and I I didn't I didn't even know what the notes were. I didn't even know how to play it on any instrument. I just would sing that to him and he'd just start playing it. I could have taken the time to write it out in sheet music or figure out like the exact notes, but I'm glad I didn't because Me, when I think about something that's really important in music, translation is one of those things. I think when I work with other artists as a producer, a huge part of what I'm trying to do is just translate. Like I'm helping them translate their ideas or I'm helping them translate this abstract idea of a song into a finished recording, which maybe is a good segue into talking about language because I know you speak some Korean, I can read and write, like I can make the sounds, but my comprehension is very poor. (laughs) Okay, so my relationship to Persian is like inverted. I can speak and understand Persian pretty well, but I cannot read or write it. I'm what you'd call illiterate. I think that's better. (laughs) I wish I had that experience over. I think that part of it is like the Korean alphabet is like very simple. It's actually one of the easier languages to, to learn how to read and write. Do both of your parents speak Persian? Yes. 
I think that might be part of the reason why I'm not fluent in Korean is because my mom didn't want to exclusively speak to me in English because she didn't want my dad to feel left out. So I never got to like fully be integrated. At home, do you guys usually speak Persian or do you speak English? It's a mix. Mix. When I'm on the phone with my parents, sometimes I like to speak Persian as a way of keeping it up. Mm. It's not something I want to lose. Yeah, definitely. I feel like now it's hard for me to do anything without turning it into a project because I just really love work. If I want to have a personal experience now, I feel like I have to stack it with some project or work in some way. And thinking about writing a next book, I think I want to live in Korea for a year at some point and really commit to learning the language. Because my mom always used to say to me, if you just spent like six months in Korea, like you would pick it up. You should definitely do it. Yeah. Someday after I... Do you, do you think you'll tour on this record? Yes. And I, I really loved touring recently. Like I took a break from it. And then when I came back to it, I felt like this energy. And some of the last shows that I did... So it's funny that I say my rule was no strings because on my first album, there's a ton of strings. And my live band was essentially just a string quartet and a percussionist. Mm. And uh, by the end, I started to figure out these ways of extending the songs and really taking advantage of having these incredible string players who could not just play the sheet music I'd written, but actually could improvise. So I started having songs where they would each take a turn taking a solo. And there's a performance of Half Light that I posted this sort of improvisational section where each member of the quartet takes a solo and the second violinist, I asked him to quote the guitar solo from Wuthering Heights. He learned it and it was definitely really fun to have a live show where you were hearing my songs, but then also it was starting to open up and I was just very excited for the next stage. Do you have an idea of what your ideal live band would be for this record? I would like to have a string quartet that could put the string instruments down and then get up and shred like psych rock. <laughs> Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Wait, I feel like I'm doing a, a very bad job of asking you questions. Talk to me about what were you thinking for your live show? What's your vis vision for it? I really wanted to have a bigger band. My ideal lineup would be to like have the main band, which is like two guitars, bass and drums, and the guitar player will play keys occasionally. And then I wanted to add a string quartet and then like trombone, trumpet and sax. But I don't know if that's feasible. I think maybe if some bigger shows, it's something that we could do. Strings are, are like really intimidating. They just seem, especially someone that like doesn't have much of a theory background, it seems like something that was like really intimidating and mysterious and, and having tried my hand at it for this record, especially knowing like more string players and like different types of instrumentalists, like it's more fun to, to work with them on that kind of thing now than when I was younger.
What was your music education like? I majored in music at Columbia. Oh, wow. so, okay. so the music major could be a little bit of what you wanted it to be. But the thing I focused it on was composition. The music major is also the most, it's like one of the most course intensive majors because you have to take four semesters of harmony, two semesters of diatonic, and then two semesters of chromatic harmony. What I didn't like was that after you finish those two years, there was like only the rest of music theory, like harmony theory. I wanted like another two years of just like going deeper. I wanted to spend a lot of time like going deep with that stuff. But there was a really cool composer in residence named Francois Murai. And I did take his orchestration class, which I think it really changed me a lot because do you know about the Overtone series? Did mm-hmm. Was that? So that was something that I was like always fascinated by. But then Wait, my, what is that? it's kind of like this idea where if you sang a note or I sang the exact same note, people would be able to tell that like we had different voices. And the reason is because even though we're singing the same note, there's different overtones our vocal cords are creating at the same time. And that's why when a flute plays a note or a violin plays a note, those like notes have a unique timbre. That's mm-hmm. like the word that gets thrown around. And it's something that you can apply to orchestration and classical music, but it's also a huge part of recording. I don't know if you've ever noticed, like if you play a, a drum kit, like sometimes the snare drum feels like it's really like part of the song. And other times the snare drum feels like it's like out. Out of tune. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it, sometimes that's good. And all this kind of has to do with the overtone and the overtone series. It's like really where the math lives behind music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I think I was willfully ignorant of theory for so long because I just didn't have access to it when I was younger. Like even... I always thought I had a terrible voice and I like never even did choir growing up. And now, and it was also never an option for me to even consider going to music school of any kind. So I think I was just like willfully ignorant of it. And I was really worried that it would affect my songwriting if I learned more about it. I've kind of enjoyed being like an idiot savant. Like, oh, well, that's like the punk ethos, mm-hmm. right? The more you know, like the less you are yourself. But now as I've met so many more people who have this kind of education, I'm very envious of it because I think it can really help unlock things. And maybe especially if you come into it like later on in life, because I've just been so set in these very simple tools that when I do get to introduce a very simple element of music theory, it helps me tremendously. I love getting lost when I'm making music. I like not knowing like where I am in terms of the theory of it and being able to just shut that off and just trust my ear and trust my instincts and not feel like I'm serving some kind of like mathematical monster. Was that ever like a struggle for you to turn it on and off? So when I was a kid, I started taking guitar lessons with this teacher who was like the rock guitarist, but he could do classical and jazz. And I came in and I wanted to learn like Radiohead and Bush and Counting Crows. And he would (laughs) teach me all those songs. And then he'd also be like, now you need to learn Jimi Hendrix. And then it got to a certain point where by the time I was 17 and I'd been like learning guitar for four years, I was like, I don't want to learn any more guitar. I just want you to teach me music theory. What a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Me? Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people who went to music school, like, drop out. And you were like, I wanted two more years of going deeper. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about something separate from music for a second. Have you had any quarantine ambitions? And also, have you had any quarantine achievements that have nothing to do with music? My number one failed quarantine ambition was like, oh, I like, a, I love a theme. I tried to curate a theme to like really keep going through this time. And I was like, oh, in February, I'm going to read like a Jane Austen novel once a week to celebrate Valentine's Day. Romantic. And I got like halfway through Sense and Sensibility. And I was like, I, I have so much going on. I need to like not think about Jane Austen right now. I was really into chess when I was in elementary school. And then I, I watched The Queen's Gambit. And I just, I just, this is a question I have for you. Uh, I feel like everyone or like a lot of people have this thing in their life that they were like once really obsessed with 
and either suffered from an injury or just hit that point where they're like, I'm pretty good, but there's this ceiling as a child or a teenager a lot of time where you're just like, I'm pretty good, but I'm never gonna have what it takes to be at the very top. I kind of had that with chess and I like forgot about it for a long time. I actually went to chess club. I like was so obsessed with it from fourth to seventh grade. I would go to tournaments and would, you know, see a Russian tutor like twice a week. And like, I was actually on a billboard playing chess with the mayor for my chess club. And the, and the caption was like, some of the coolest people play chess. And it's like me playing chess with the mayor. Very cool. And I was like really obsessed with it. And then, yeah, I just, I got to like seventh grade and I was like going through puberty and I like didn't want to like engage in this thing that was like so objectively uncool. I remember there were like younger kids that were like coming into the chess club and there was like this eight-year-old boy and he beat me and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I got really into playing online chess again uh, during the quarantine to just have something to enjoy that doesn't, it's never gonna lead to anything except for like my own quiet enjoyment and killing time. I'm wondering if you had something like that in your life. I did go to the Junior Olympics for fencing. What? <laughs> in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh my God. I must've been like a young teen, maybe 13 or something. Do you have an epee or whatever it's called? Is that what it's called? There's, I only know so that from the crossword. There's two blades. There's a foil and epe. And so in foil, like just the torso is eligible to score points. Um, and in epe, the entire body can be like a, a source of scoring points. So yeah, fencing is one of them. And then also ping pong, which oh. I still love playing ping pong, but that is something that I know I'll never be at the level. I know your ethnicity is Korean. Can we talk a little bit about your project name. And I'll share that for me, I'm also a Japanophile. I don't know if you are or how you feel about that term. I don't yeah. know how I feel about that term, yeah. but I love Japanese culture. And in the last three years, I've taken a week in November and spent like time in Tokyo. You know, it was so long ago. It was like, I think 2013 or like 2014. And I was playing in this band called Little Big League. And I just wanted a side project where like I had full control and could just like put songs up on like Tumblr or Bandcamp. And my main project was not doing well. So I was just like, no one is ever gonna hear this project. I would upload these songs and I like would attach like just like an animated GIF onto the post. And a lot of the like Tumblrs that I was following just happened to be like animated GIFs of like anime food like moving so it'd be someone like brushing yakitori or like a steaming salmon filet with miso and rice and it conjured an image that was soothing and neat to me and i just was like oh it's called japanese breakfast and i would just upload these like kind of food images to pair along with whatever song i had recorded that day and i feel like at that time it was also before like my mom passed away it was before i like ever really wrote about my korean heritage or became more invested in that no one was ever interested in like my like racial identity the way that they are now. So I just didn't really think about it. People have always felt this right to know my ethnicity. If anything, this is just like fucking with them. I guess like in retrospect, like I wish that it wasn't that this way because I think it's quite confusing now because I've started writing a lot about Korean food of all things. Korean culture was like never as visible. And so I always like really related to Japanese culture because it was the most like visible Asian culture that I felt like I had access to that's felt similar to like my experiences. It's so ridiculous that you should feel like you're not allowed to name your project whatever you want and that somehow your like Korean identity is being disrespected. It's just so annoying that I feel like we are sometimes asked to have zero nuance in what we do. Yeah, I've definitely not been secret about my identity at all. I'm definitely wary and don't want to be appropriative at all. And I, it's something that I think about a lot and want to be like an active listener to. But I do feel like, I don't know, I have my own reasons for it. Korea and Japan have like a very historically tense relationship. When I was younger, like my mom actually would never let me buy Japanese products growing up. That's a really common thing is if we went to the Asian supermarket and I would be like, can I get Pocky? She'd be like, you can't get Pocky. You have to get Pepero, like the Korean version of Pocky. But yeah, I don't know. Like it is it is frustrating now to have this, this bad name. <laughs> have you ever felt like people made assumptions about you based on your band name or based on like 
your ethnicity? I don't or is know. That, that, is that That's too a big, big a question? It's a big it's question. Big. Do you feel that way? And I think that a lot of people who are like not white in the arts, like I want to be in a neutral body. I want to be treated and perceived the same way that anyone else would be. And I feel like a lot of black artists have talked about their frustration with this, where it's like, if you're a black artist, you're immediately like labeled as like R&B or soul or like urban or whatever. And that's yeah. really like restrictive. I feel like there's less of that in in my circumstance, especially now it feels like there's more space in like the indie world or like whatever world I want to be a part of. I want to be asked more questions about not craft about and not about identity. And I think that's what's <laughs> frustrating. I think that Mitski like has had interviews where she was like, or Bjork has said this too, where she's like, it feels as a woman in music, no one is interested unless you like unearth this like major trauma narrative or are talking about like heartbreak or something. I feel like a lot of the times it feels like people really want to know like how you've suffered as an Asian American. And especially right now, actually, like right before this call, I've been having so many interviews about now about can you talk about like the anti-Asian like hate crimes that are happening right now. It's frustrating because I wish I could step up to the plate and have something like really poignant to say about this grief that I feel and this anger that I feel about what's happening. But it's also frustrating because why is the onus on me to talk about these things? Are you asking your white guests like the same question about like how they care about like this anti-Asian hate crime or like in the same way of talking about sexism in music? Why is the onus on women to talk about this? And why aren't these same questions like being asked to, to men in this industry? Have you had that experience with like your racial identity and like coming <laughs> I, up? Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah and I your sexuality definitely. and like... Yes, I could. I'm happy to talk about it. When I came into this world of music making, it was in the context of being in a band. And I think it was convenient in some cases for people to erase my ethnicity because mm. it pro it problematized their narrative and what they wanted to say because I wasn't white. And the idea that me not being white was meaningful was troubling to them. Especially because, like, your band was, like, so associated with, with that ethnicity. culture. Oh, with you white culture. A, yeah, Interesting. with white culture. Not, like, I'm sure that. I feel like the term, like, yacht rock was, like, thrown. I'm sure you must hate that. Rightfully so. But, I mean, it is wild that you're such a major part of that project. And it was looked at in this, like, way. It was interesting. There was only one writer who really crossed the line and she literally said things about me that I think when in 2010, when the article came out, people wouldn't be like, that's racist. But now it's been 11 years and she literally said racist stuff about me. Like there was a quote where Ezra had said the two main songwriters are Jewish and Persian. That's a broad definition of white. And then she said something like saying that your bandmate is Persian is the pitchfork equivalent of some of my best friends are black. Oh my God. Yes, it was insane. And at the time I, I felt like I didn't really have enough language to talk. Not only did I feel like I didn't have the language to talk about what I felt at that moment, but I also feel like culturally we weren't ready to talk about stuff. I didn't know what to say because I mm -hmm. definitely didn't think of myself as white. There was never a box to check for Middle Eastern. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, both my parents are from Iran. Iran is in Asia. So I'm going to check Asian Pacific Islander because ultimately like that is who, as a naive kid, that that is what I identified with. And I, I still identify more with Asian people. And I do feel a sense of, is it right to say pan-Asian pride? I do feel like connected to that and to other people who... I don't know, who come from that experience. I feel more connected to those people than people who don't have that experience. But I feel like you're totally right when you say everybody should feel like they need to express allyship to... It's, it should be on white people, people who've <laughs> always had the privilege of unquestioned whiteness. It should be on them to like express solidarity and to have to deal with what's going on in the world. It upsets me that it's an interview question that you're facing uniquely. And people, they want your soundbite because right, they right. want to say something that is like of the times as opposed to wanting to do something. So something I think about in my life a lot is, have you ever heard this expression, don't talk about it, be about it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and it, it makes me think about who I want to collaborate, what I want to, what am I trying to express musically on my own and as a producer. And I love to just let 
my choices in some ways speak for themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and not have to answer like interview type questions about what motivates me. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a struggle. I, like right before this, I did like a TV thing and I'm so not used to like that type of interview. I'm much more used to something like this where you like can just have a very comfortable conversation. If this were to be like an actual interview where someone was going to be borrowing parts of the conversation, you have to put your trust in them to like take what you're saying and represent it fairly. But in on a TV thing, it's you're really just put on the spot and it's so on. And I wasn't like prepped for this question, which I should have anticipated was going to be a question. I want to learn how to step up to that role. I think a lot of artists like hate this idea that we're like meant to be role models because I think a lot of artists are actually just like a bunch of shy nerds that like want to like just make stuff, not be these kind of cultural leaders. I feel like what you were just talking about, like the way you were being asked these interview questions, it sounds like they really want you to center yourself and you to talk about your experience as this, it make everything about you because you're on our program and by having you center yourself, you make our program more meaningful. I feel like they wanted me to say, like, it's too bad that six Asian women were murdered, like, in an act of domestic terrorism. But my record is about joy, and Asian joy is important. Like, that is disgusting. I don't want to center myself in this narrative. Like, I I need a fucking moment to, like, think about what this means and what happens. This feels like one of the first times that, like, the Asian community has like really started speaking up about this kind of abuse that has always happened. It feels like unbelievable in a way because I feel like Asian culture is considered so white adjacent that people don't believe us like when we speak up about this kind of thing or our culture like teaches us to keep it hidden or private or be stoic about it. And so it feels like there's this real reckoning that's happening right now because there's been so many increased like incidences of this happening. There've been so many public facing like politicians stoking this fire. And then this was the culmination of all of this buildup. And I can speak about it more like openly here with you, but it's so aggravating because when you're put on the spot, it's so hard to rise to that occasion because I'm still processing what's, I, I can't put it into a soundbite. And it makes me feel like fucking gross to like, be expected to do that. And it frustrates me that I know that these people are going to have many interviews all day with like people who aren't Asian and none of them are going to be asked about what just happened. Hopefully, like maybe even just us talking about this now will (laughs) lead to some kind of like (laughs) understanding in the media about not asking people to constantly have a soundbite ready and maybe like to see there is something deeply capitalistic about wanting to take somebody's ethnicity and make that like a selling point for your show, which is probably owned by white corporations. Totally. <laughs> now we've had a heavy talk about heavy things. Let me ask you a few questions about your record. What is your favorite song on your album? And you could do two or you could say one of your favorite. Sometimes when I get these questions, I'm like, you got to answer. You better be honest. Don't lie. Don't give the wrong answer. So yes, there's no wrong answer. For a while now, my favorite song has been the song Kokomo, Indiana, because it feels so, so classic to me and, and very strong. And I feel like it's just such a sweet sentiment of a song. I wrote it like from the perspective of two kids, like in a small town and like the way that I wish that like teenage relationships could have ended in this like very sweet way. It's my take on wouldn't it be nice in a way. It's this young boy who's saying goodbye to his girlfriend who's like going off to a foreign exchange program in Australia. And I just like the idea of having this like teenage maturity to be like, I recognize that we're very young and we're too young for this to be forever. And you have so much ahead of you in your life And all of the parts that like I fell so hard for are the things that everyone in the world, so many different people that you're going to encounter are gonna fall so hard for too. And it would be so selfish to keep you here with me in this small town when you have to go out and be amazing and like change and like transform. I find that to be like very heartwarming. Like when you can have that kind of perspective on the love that you have and like exit out of this selfish desire to just hold that person and keep them for yourself. And instead like acknowledging like a part of what makes them so special. What about you? Do you have a, this is a nerdy question. Do you have like a number track like that you feel like 
should be a certain thing. Because usually number three is like my star big, like my the best track in my mind. It should be like number three or number two. <laughs> I'm thinking. You don't have those feelings. <laughs> yes. No, I do. I do. Yes. Or like side or like track I five think, usually ends a yeah, side. Yes. I do think track five is important. I'm pretty sure to communicate is like track it's either seven or eight now. Oh, wow. But yeah, I guess maybe I like that. I like the song to communicate because the chorus is just, I was not able to communicate before, which is in some ways a very <laughs> dumb chorus, but it's also very direct and it's very honest. And I kind of like the idea that it had these different levels. Like you could think of it in terms of like human interaction, but also in terms of just, I was not able to communicate to myself before. Mm -hmm. It's funny, doing these interviews, I'm like learning about my own songwriting just by talking about it. There are some interviews that are really nice. Though. It's like therapy. You're forced to talk about yourself for a concentrated period of time. What else is therapy, really? Have you been doing Zoom therapy or any kind of therapy? I was in the fall and I've since stopped, but have you? Yeah, pretty consistently. Although I think I took some time off. I got COVID at exactly oh a year God. ago. So like right in the beginning. Were you in LA? I was in New York. I was playing on Jimmy Fallon Whoa. with Haim. Whoa. And as I was flying back, I remember the date exactly because it was March 12th. Because that was, I don't know if you remember that Friday where everything shut down. Yeah, vaguely. So I was flying back and I came down with a fever. Oh my God. Yes. And oh was, my God. I was like, is this great? Do I have COVID? Anyways, I, I got home and I went directly to bed and I slept all day and all night for four days. And then I had another four days where I just didn't feel normal. And then a f about three weeks after that, I tested positive for antibodies. So wow. I've been an antibodies baby. That's so crazy. Hopefully, like, we're nearing the end of this. <laughs> I think that we're probably, like, nearing the end, but I really wanted to ask a really boring question before we end. I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. Like, you, you talk about, how, like, your work as a producer, helping someone, like, translate ideas. How do you translate your own ideas and, like, how did those, like, conversations differ? And what was, like, a lesson that you learned from the last record you worked on that you brought into this record? Oh, I feel like, hmm, there's like the writing component and there's a the production component. There's never been an album that I just produced, which I'm actually hmm. interested in having that experience. Like someone bringing me 10 songs that they wrote on acoustic guitar and be like, produce these 10 songs. The songs are written like everything's written. Just let's produce them. Let's record them. So I guess one thing that happened that was unexpected with the Heim record is that we wrote two of my favorite songs with kind of like weeks to spare before the deadline. So the songs I've Been Down and Gasoline, they showed up like at the 11th hour. And that was inspiring just that at that point, we'd been working on this album for a year and a half and or actually a lot longer than that. We knew like when we had to finish the album, there were songs that were mixed. There were songs that were released and we were in the midst of it. And these songs showed up and that was inspiring because you think you know what your album is. But at the 11th hour, if new songs show up, then you got to accept them and you got to put them on the final product. So that was definitely something that inspired me. I love doing both. I love being able to make records on my own and I love being able to make records with people. And I think they are pretty different. And some of the songs on my album were the result of me like making a beat and bouncing down the beat to MP3 and then just listening to it over years. I like being able to have something that I can pick up and put down over like a really long time and figure out what I want to sing on top of it and not not feel like there's a finish line in sight. And I don't think it would be possible for me to do that with a collaborative project because I do feel like it's important to have a goal. Whereas on my own, it's important not to have a goal. Have you ever seen the Arthur Russell documentary? There's like a quote in that movie where so I think someone's talking about Arthur being very into process. And 
I think I, I see shades of myself in there because I'm also someone who's into process. I like the idea that like music making is this journey and that it's somewhat never ending. That's beautiful. I'm the total opposite. I hate process. <laughs> I'm like very end goal oriented. Me, I always feel like there has to be like some torment that I'm wrestling with to get to the finish line. I always feel very tormented during the process. So I'm always like trying to get out of it, trying to get to the end, try to just get to what I hear in my head as fast as possible to my detriment, I think. But so I really envy people that are able to, and I hope that I can get to that place in, in my work where I can like really relish process because I think most of the musicians I really admire really relish process and it's a huge part of their journey. And it's definitely like a much more enjoyable way to make music, I think. I'm also that end goal oriented person, but I, I think that's what I like about my own project is that I don't have to be that person mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't feel a pressure. Maybe this is like a weird thing to say out loud, but I guess I'm going to say it. I, I feel like I have made some music that everybody likes in my life. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like a little over it. <laughs> yeah, you want to start making some weird <laughs> shit. I aspire to make music that anybody can like, but I'm just like totally okay with if you don't like something or you think it's too weird or whatever, or it's not for you, cool. I really don't care. Totally. I don't need you to like it anymore. <laughs> maybe some people, they go into music with that feeling. And maybe some people want to make music that people don't like. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's true. Whether or not they admit it or not. I feel like I have a lot of like artists type of bands that it's, they simultaneously are really frustrated, like frustrated that they don't have like kind of popularity that they deserve. But it's also like, the music that you make is like super fucking weird and that's what makes it amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think of the music I make as this is pop and this is not. And maybe that's been the trajectory of music in the last 10 years. I have a friend who thinks more about these like kind of trends and I don't really think about them in terms of like trends, but he was like the most pop thing to do right now is to not be pop. <laughs> I'm like, oh brother. <laughs> and with that, I think we could say we've had a great conversation. <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much. This was so fun. I think you had awesome questions. You too. I'm so glad to have learned about your history with fencing. That was my favorite <laughs> part of the conversation. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks to Rostam and Michelle Zahner for chatting. Both of their records are incredible, so check them out. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcast service and check out TalkHouse.com for tons of great written pieces. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. Thanks for listening. See you next time.